Good morning. I've been struggling for the last few days, uh, trying to figure out how would I best introduce the few words that I want to share with you with regard to Kathleen and my leaving this area. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to say this. We're going to miss you. We appreciate all the days that we've spent with you, your kind words to us every Sunday. Somebody would say, not just somebody, many would say, we love you and we care for you. And uh, that really resonates with me, uh, all the great things that you have done and said. And it's a joy to be with you. It's kind of sad in one respect to uh, say goodbye. Um, But on the other hand, uh, we have a a glorious God who has set before us a a focus in planting a new church. And we would like to see the church be built up that will honor and glorify our Lord. So pray with us. we do have a, um, an address, kind of interesting the way our address worked out. Our son lives on 20 feet from us. We're right next to each other, and uh, we're going to work together, Lord willing. Uh, I really appreciate my son. He's a, he's a terrific guy. Uh, loves the Lord, has served him in the church for 11 years. And uh, he's going to leave that, and we're both going to start fresh again. Today, I'd like to speak from the book of Job, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, And he will curse thee face to face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd or a piece of broken crockery to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. 
But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nemethite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. They saw that his pain was very great. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed at the steadfastness of your servant Job. We thank you, Father, that you never left him. You took care of him. And Father, we thank you this morning for our being together here. And, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together. May your name be honored and glorified. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. My title for the message today is Sitting Among the Ashes. Have you ever sat in the dumps? Have you ever been in the dumps? It's a hard place to be. It's a very uncomfortable place to be. It, it seems that not a week goes by that we hear on the news or read in the newspaper a story of a major tragedy. And I'm sure you remember the devastating earthquake and tsunami in Japan. And we were stunned with the ferocity of the tornadoes that hit the Midwest. And then we had the terrorist attacks here in our country. And on and on they seemed to go. Difficult time after difficult time. We are overcome with the swiftness, the immensity, the totality, the emotional jarring with joy on the one hand and elation and pride and hope moving on to grief and to fear and to anger and to sadness. So overwhelming. And how quickly life moves. How quickly life changes. And we just read from the book of Job that moving chapter, chapter 2. And again, I want to reemphasize the text. He was sitting among the ashes. And this verse, I believe, uh, captures the pathos the futility, the tragedy of a man who's lost it all. Outside the village, on the garbage dump, among the refuse, the throwaway things, the things no one has any use for, there sits the man Job. 
Job is on the village dump because anxious citizens are probably concerned that Job's disease is contagious. And they therefore cast him out of the city, out by himself, out by that smelly place, the dumps. In Job chapter 1 and verse 3, it said that the man who was the greatest man of all the men of the East, that was Job. He is now rejected, alone, suffering from a terrible disease that covers him from head to toe, the entire body. In our text in chapter 2 verse 8, suggests a man stirring with his finger among the ashes, the refuse, until he finds a piece of broken pottery. And then in a pitiful gesture, scrapes himself with that piece of broken crockery in order to relieve the pain and to relieve the itching, the terrible itching that he suffers. But there he sits. The Septuagint version of the Old Testament says that he, that Job used the pottery to scrape the pus that was oozing from his sores. Not a very nice picture at all. And there sits Job in the ashes. When all is gone, even a piece, a broken piece of pottery is held on to in some kind of futile desperation. We hold on so dearly to any hope of help or relief. And this is a picture of despair with Job in the dumps. And this morning I want us to look at a man, at the man Job and three of his responses to the losses in his life. And first of all, I want to look at his grief. Job was not a stoic. He grieved. He grieved very deeply. And he is not a stoic. Secondly, we'll look at his worship or submission. And lastly, we'll look at his praise. Job's first response is grief. And at times I feel like I can live with Job and be with Job Particularly when our daughter was killed. A very hard time. A time of grief. A time of numbness. But there sat Job. So we'll look at his grief. First of all, he tears his robe and he shaves his head. This was the traditional Mideastern way of removing every suggestion of pride. First, the tearing of his outer garment so it could never be worn again. Then the shaving of the head. And it's worth noting that Job does not gash his body with a knife as some of the heathen nations did. Symbolically, and actually Job grieved his losses. Never get the idea that he was a Stoic. And that's what I mentioned before. 
if I can find it, I have some notes here with regard to his losses. What they were here it is. He lost all his possessions. And if you read chapter 1 and notice what his possessions were, you will understand how great his losses were. I think we start out with just a number of sheep, 7,000 sheep. Can you imagine 7,000 sheep that he loses? He lost all 10 of his children. I lost one. Job lost 10. He lost the encouragement of his wife. He lost his health. He had ulcerated skin full of maggots, as chapter 7 and verse 5 suggests. He had terrifying nightmares, chapter 7, verse 13 to 15. He burned with fever, chapter 30. He lost his friends and acquaintances. He lost his sense of personal worth. And he cursed the day of his birth. He was depressed. He was given to much weeping. His vision was failing. His breath, you wouldn't want to be around him, was putrid. He was emaciated. He had rotting teeth. He feared God had abandoned him. And that was his greatest loss of all. The fear that God had abandoned him. What do you do when you grieve? What do you do when you experience a great loss? How do you handle it? Do you clench your teeth and grit it out? I'm going to just grit that out. Do you weep? Do you try to be by yourself? You don't want to talk about it. Do you internalize your grief? Do you try to shut it out of your mind? Do you seek help? A lady by the name of Roberta Thames, in her book, Living with an Empty Chair, identifies three stages of grief. With regard to the empty chair, I recall being in the courthouse as they were trying this man who killed my wife, killed my daughter. And uh, I told the judge, I said, one of the difficult things for us is going to be the empty chair at Thanksgiving. The empty chair at Christmas. Grieving, grieving. And you've noticed the empty chair. She's no longer there. Roberta Thames in that book, Living with an Empty Chair, identifies three stages of grief. Dr. Kubler-Ross identifies a fourth stage. Many people I have talked to confirm most, if not all, of these stages. There's first stage called the stage of denial. I know about that stage. In that stage, one denies that a problem even exists. The person says they can handle the situation. They don't need any help. A number of years ago, in the little town of Moraga, where I live, there was a kidnapping. About 25 years ago. And uh, 
I read everything I could to find out all that the newspaper found out. And uh, there was a phone number of the family who lost their daughter. So I called the phone number and I spoke to the father of this girl who was kidnapped. And he said, I only wish you could be here. It's so lonely. We miss our daughter. We're still hopeful that she will still come out alive and be able to rejoin our family. Well, they, there were a lot of search and rescue teams, and they found a lot of clothing that belonged to this girl, and it was, seemed pretty obvious that this girl was not coming back. This couple was denying that their daughter was dead. And I, I could sympathize with their denial. Secondly, there was a stage of numbness. This is where a person doesn't feel much of anything. This is where it feels hard to even think. It is where one goes through the motions of the daily routine but in a mechanical kind of way. And the third stage of grief is disorganization. This is where you can't find things. You lose things. can't find your keys to your car. You can't do a number of things that you normally could do. You can't remember. If you feel like you're going crazy, it's where you don't sleep well and your appetite for food changes quite dramatically. And then the last stage, thank goodness there is a, la a latter stage, is reorganization. Here life begins to come together again, finally. The feelings are less intense. There's occasional peacefulness. This is where a person starts seeing people again and life doesn't look as bleak as it once did. I can tell you that I've been dreaming the last uh, few days or the last few nights, uh, dreaming about our leaving the area, leaving friends and, and uh, trying to make new friends and wondering what kind of friends they would be, uh, whether we could really share our lives together. Uh, so I, I was dreaming about these, these kinds of things and, you know, yeah, I didn't sleep very well actually. But Job expressed his grief. He expressed his grief because, as I said before, he was not a stoic. He didn't keep it inside of him. He grieved his losses. And I'd like to say that it's appropriate for a Christian to grieve their losses. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 said this, We do not want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We grieve. I grieve, but we had hope. We have hope. We have hope in the God who's going to carry through His promises and what He said He will do. We're looking forward to that great reunion in the sky. A reunion where we will never part again.
where we'll be able to greet each other, love each other, because they, our Savior is there. And He loves us and takes care of us. Job's second response to his losses, and I want you to notice verse 20. Verse 20 of chapter 1. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He fell to the ground and worshipped. And in this one word, worship, we get a new awareness of who Job really is. Job didn't break because somewhere he learned to bend. And you need to learn to bend. I need to learn to bend. This peculiar word, worship, carries with it the idea of a submissiveness to the will of God as the greatest good. The will of God is the greatest good for us. And sometimes uh, we wonder, uh, is this the will of God? Am I doing the right thing? Uh, Am I disobedient? He tore his robe and shaved his head. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There was the idea of nakedness. Of what was Job naked for? What was it? What was his clothing? What had been his clothing? That now he was naked. Well, there were his considerable possessions. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. These were removed. That was part of his clothing. He was clothed with possessions. And he lost all of those. Then there was Job's family. Ten children. He was dressed with a wonderful family. These were removed from him. Then there was Job's reputation. The greatest man in the East. How many people would like to have the idea that they were one of the great men of the East or any of the other directions of the compass? These were removed. After the second trial, Job was stripped of his health and he was stripped of contact with former neighbors, the people who formally indicated their great respect for Job. Job was so badly emaciated that when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize who he was. Can you imagine that? Not being able to recognize who this man Job was. And suffering has a way of undressing us. And what it often reveals is a trembling, helpless, dependent person. Where did Job's strength come from? And how was he enabled to praise God? And I want you to notice the rest of the text in verse 21. 
I think I just read that a moment ago. But he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Blaming is a it's a game that we engage in very often. I guess we blame others because it's too hard to accept the blame for ourselves. Job recognized that he had begun his life with nothing but himself, that he and everyone else will go out of this life stripped of everything except what they have become. And here's where I want you to listen. What Job had become was what gave him strength. In chapter 1, verse 8, and in chapter 2, verse 3, God calls Job, my servant. My servant. There was a relational aspect to this calling himself my servant. Job recognized a relationship, a relationship with God, and he served the living God. A man may stand before God as Job did, stripped of everything that life has given him, and still lack nothing. Isn't that interesting? Be stripped of everything, and yet lack nothing. Well, how, how is that possible? Well, Job still had God, and God still had Job, and Job is enabled to praise God. Death does not take away our relationship with God. Do all Christians respond to being stripped as Job did? Well, our life experience tells us no. Not experience tells us that some, to a measure, do, but some don't. Just a little story. I'll make it brief. One of the ladies who came to Valley Church of Morocco, where I, I served the Lord, in its early days, was diagnosed with cancer in her spine. And I visited her the day before she died. I entered her room. She recognized me and said, Hugo, why must I suffer so much? And I had no ready answer. I squeezed her hand gently. And then she said something I'll never forget. After having said, why must I suffer so much? She said, but isn't the Lord precious? Stripped, yet lacking nothing, and praising God. Dear lady, died the next day. How long should we stick with a grieving person? We know that Job's three friends came from a distance. I don't know how they found out that Job was uh, sick. We don't, the text doesn't tell us. 
But the three friends saw him from afar, didn't recognize him, but they came anyway. And they stayed with Job for seven days and seven nights, not saying a single word. They were silent. They could see that Job's pain was very, very great, and so they commiserated with him by being silent. Sometimes silence is a healing way to be. Actually, I appreciated silence much more than the talk. And this is what is needed so terribly today. We need people who will stick with us, be kind. One of the great verses in the Bible, I believe, is in the book of Job. Job chapter 6. Job chapter 6 says this, New American Standard. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. Why? Lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. There is a danger. And yet there is a solution. The danger is that uh, we might forsake the fear of the Almighty God. That's the danger. On the other hand, if there is a kind person that embraces the hurting one, that is so helpful, so healing. Let's do that. Let's embrace each other and help each other as best we can. As we note that they are, some people are going through a difficult time, let's embrace them. Let's hold them tight. Let's stay with them. I'm going to stop here and ask us to pray for one another. And I'd like to ask you to pray silently yourself for just a few moments, and then I'll pray out loud. So let's just bow our heads and ask God to bless people that you may know uh, who are struggling in some fashion and who need the help of a kind person. Let's just do that right now. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you as a kind, loving God. Great is your faithfulness in what you do and in what you say. And Father, I'd like to thank you for these dear people here at, at this church. Father, would you give them what they need? Pray for Adel and Sylvia as they journey back home. Bring them here safely and in good spirits. And for the dear people here, Lord, I pray that you would bless each one. May the, may the reputation of our being kind people spread throughout this neighborhood. And may they experience the touch of our almighty kind God.
Thank you, Father, for your presence here and for your love to us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.